Winston Churchill once said, the pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity. The optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. Get ready to be inspired. This is the Big Fish Cares Podcast. Big Fish Cares Podcast. Whether it's business, life, financial, relationships, we're sharing stories and journeys to help inspire you to be optimistic and to take action. No matter the hurdle in life, you can do it, and we're here to help. Welcome to the Big Fish Cares Podcast, and here's your host, Benny Fisher. This is going to be a great episode. We're back in the studio with Jim O'Brien, the Pittsburgh sports author, and today we're going to talk about his book, Golden Arms. And he features the six quarterbacks from southwestern Pennsylvania that are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And everybody loves talking about quarterbacks. Uh, And, Jim, it's good to see you again. It's good to have you back. It's good to be with you. And all six of those quarterbacks, I was in Canton, Ohio, your hometown, to see them inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame and, of course, have experiences with them. And they were always favorites of mine. Another one who's not in that list that uh, you knew as a kid uh, Lenny Dawson from uh, Alliance, Alliance Ohio. Yeah, Alliance so, Ohio. He played for the Steelers for two years. Then he played for the Cleveland Browns for two Steelers, and he wasn't successful either place. And he becomes. <laughs> a, and I was in Kansas City when he came there. So the six quarterbacks: George Blanda, Johnny Unitas, Joe Namath, Jim Kelly, Joe Montana, and Dan Marino. Let's talk about these guys and let's give them, you know, let's let's give five to ten minutes on each of these guys because I know you could probably do a whole podcast on each one of them individually. But tell me about George Blanda. Who is he? Where is he from? George Blanda is from Youngwood, Pennsylvania. Is that up by uh, Lake Trobe, right? Yes. Yeah. And every time I used to drive or sometimes when I still go out that way toward the Steelers training camp in St. Vincent, um, I drive right by George Blanda's boyhood home. And I remember being there a couple months before he got into the Hall of Fame in Canton with his brothers and his sisters and his most of all with his mother. His mother was in her 80s, and she's out mowing the lawn of the house. I still can picture her. And she wanted me to offer me a shot of whiskey. And my friend who was with me uh, turned her down because he said, I don't drink whiskey. And she said, well, what kind of man doesn't drink whiskey? And here she was. If you shook hands with her, she's doing and We're not talking about a, a power mower. We're talking about a handheld mower, and uh, she's doing the grass. Meanwhile, with all the boys around. And the girl said that she only paid attention to the sons. She didn't pay attention to the daughters. And it was interesting seeing the family dynamics. And uh, George was telling a story about a particular game. And I had just read a book called Blanda by Wells Twombly of the Houston Chronicle. And uh, something that George said didn't jive with something I just read the day before. And I corrected him on some aspect of his storytelling. And wow, you talk about Bill Cowers' glare. George Blanda threw a chin in my chin, and and he said, it's my story. (laughs) Don't tell me how to tell my story. But he... um, He played at the University of Kentucky. He played for Bear Bryant. He was drafted originally by the Chicago Bears. And I don't know why they drafted him. 1949. Yeah, the reason I say that is because, get this, and here's a history lesson for you. The Bears had Sid Luckman as their number one quarterback. 
they had Johnny Lujak, who was from Western Pennsylvania, is in the College Football Hall of Fame. He's from Connellsville, but he's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. They had him on the team as well. And now they're getting um, they're getting Blando. So they actually played Blando, the linebacker, for a while. He was a football player. He could play any position. And his, one of his brothers was the quarterback at Army. One of his brothers played on the line for Pitt. So it was a football family. And uh, he invited me to a family party that was held in a restaurant in Canton, Ohio, on the eve of his induction into the Hall of Fame. So that was really up close and personal. And, of course, he became a hero when he played as a place kicker and a backup quarterback for the Oakland Raiders of Al Davis and uh, had a streak where he was throwing touchdown passes and so forth when he was in his early 40s. That was a big deal in those days. Now, of course, Tom Brady and even our Ben Roethlisberger uh, are pushing the uh, envelope as far as age is concerned. But George was a pioneer. Well, didn't he? He retired at 48 years old. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't. Does any? I mean, I don't even think any quarterbacks made it that far. Well, Vinny, Vinny Testaverde got close, didn't he? Right. And the thing is, Blanda was still. You know, he had been a star in the American Football League in the early days, and that was a pass happy league, and. Uh, People like Lenny Dawson and George Blanda were getting second chances in the, in the American Football League. And I covered the Miami Dolphins in 1969 in their last year in the, in the um, American Football League. And the next year, the Steelers, the Baltimore Colts, and the Cleveland Browns all jumped from the NFL to the AFL to make the number of teams in each conference equal and it really was a uh, crowning achievement for the merger of pro football it was it was a very critical move he uh he finished his career with 236 touchdown passes 27,000 yards these guys nowadays man they can do that in like i don't know five five six years yeah probably most of those yards were when he was with the houston oilers you know he preceded dan pastorini with the oilers but he he was quite the football player and a, and a personal favorite and a tough guy, really a tough guy. Tell me about Johnny Unitas. Well, Johnny Unitas, just the other day, someone in the Midwest sent me a, a card, a bubblegum card yeah, of Johnny Unitas. I showed that to you earlier, and it's it's really in pristine condition. I was a, He was my hero. When I was like 14 and 15 and was a mediocre quarterback for the Hazelwood Steelers Sandlot football team, I wore number 19. I got a flat top haircut. I used to throw the football right as close as you could throw it to your right ear. Forward motion, follow through. Wore black shoes that were called clod hoppers. Clod hoppers. <laughs> you ever hear that word? Yes, I've clod heard clod hoppers. Yes, okay, I, have. I wore those. They weren't. They didn't allow you to be very agile. Of course, I wasn't very agile without shoes. But uh, the thing is, is that Johnny and I was one of my early heroes, number 19. And uh, that reminds me, one time when I was working on one of my books, I had called some people and left messages for them to call me. And within one week, I had phone messages from Johnny Anitis, Danny Marino, and Mike Ditka. It's not a bad lineup. And I told my wife, do not erase those. Do you still have them? No, but I mean, I had them for a month. You should have recorded them. I, I told you I didn't have a tape recorder. We could have, we could have, we could have played it on the podcast right. today. But when Johnny Anitis called 
he, it was often said of him by his teammates that in the huddle, he sounded like God. So there's Johnny and I said, Jim O'Brien, this is Johnny Unitas in Baltimore, returning your call. Like James Earl Jones or something. Oh, it was yeah. great. It was great. So he, he was definitely a favorite of mine. And to think that he almost didn't get to play in the National Football League. He, Tell me about that story. Well, he, he was a pretty good football player at the University of Louisville. In fact, they have a statue of him. And uh, now I think they have a statue of Lamar Jackson uh, on the campus. They have a very nice athletic complex down there in Louisville. It's a great city to visit, by the way, if you're a sports fan. Kentucky Derby, the Muhammad Ali Museum, and the uh, University of Louisville. It's, it's a great place. And the Louisville Slugger Bat Factory. You could do, you could do a whole week at, uh, in Louisville, and I, I recommend that. But anyhow, Unitas never got to play in an exhibition game for the Steelers. He was their ninth-round draft pick that year. And they had actually drafted a, another quarterback from Missouri named Vic Eaton, E-A-T-O-N. And Vic Eaton could punt. So they kept Jim Finks from Tulsa, who was a veteran quarterback, returning starter. They kept Jack, um, Ted, Ted Marchabroda, who had played at St. Bonaventure University and was a longtime player and scout and coach in the National Football League. And they kept Vic Eaton because he could punt. They didn't even give a chance in retrospect to Johnny Unitas. So Johnny Unitas ends up playing for the Bloomfield Rams, which is in the east end of Pittsburgh. Was that like a semi-pro team? Seven bucks a game. Seven bucks a game. And he worked for a city work crew that did – uh, construction projects and, and fixing the highways and stuff like that in downtown Pittsburgh. Um, one of the other members of the ground cr- of this crew, work crew, was Fritzy Zivik, who had been a boxing champion from uh, Lawrenceville, one of the all-time great fighters, one of, along with Billy Kahn and Harry Greb, three of Pittsburgh's all-time greatest fighters. So that's the background that, that uh, he comes from, and uh, he. Uh, the um, Colts had a quarterback from Oregon named Jack Shaw, and he got hurt, and they needed a quarterback. So they brought in Don Klosterman was the guy who was responsible for bringing in Johnny Unitas. And the rest is history. He turns out to be one of, you know, along with Montana and a few others, one of the greatest quarterbacks in National Football League history. So that was an era with the – he, what, I don't know, 50s, the early 70s, right? Like, that was the era where pro football was kind of changing, right? Like, it was... Well, what happened was he played in a game in 1958, I believe, against the New York Giants uh, of Sam Huff and uh, Frank Gifford. And they played in the NFL championship game. There wasn't an American Football League at the time. It was just the National Football League. And uh, that game was on national television, and it was a great game. It was decided by Unitas handing the ball off to Alan the Horse Amici from Wisconsin, who crashed through the center and scored the winning touchdown. And the thing is, is that that game is credited with turning things around for the National Football League, that it became a major league sports entertainment. You know, there's a time in our history where newspapers of the caliber of the New York Times and so forth used to cover 
horse racing on a regular basis. Used to cover rowing, you know, had a rowing rider and uh, wow. boxing. I don't think those that would, that wouldn't fly today, rowing. No, those were all big. <laughs> Although one of the best books you ever want to read is uh, the book uh, Unbroken, which is uh, um, a book about that involves some rowing as, as well. But anyhow, things change. You know, the Steelers used to be lucky if they could get a paragraph in the paper. Pitt was the big deal. Carnegie Tech was even bigger than... than uh, Do you Steelers. think that... What was the mindset, you know, as the Steelers were, you know, playing, you know, going in football, you were watching, you were a Steelers fan, I'm assuming, you know, growing up. And then as Johnny Unitas, you know, slips away from Pittsburgh, right? Goes to, goes to Baltimore, right? It was Baltimore, right? It wasn't yes, Indianapolis, Baltimore. right? It was Baltimore. You know, not that far away, a couple hours. Um, and as he gets better, was there people in Pittsburgh like, oh, man, we had Unitas. We could have been. <laughs> well, it's like the Dan Marino situation all over, you know, preceded that. But one time uh, Johnny Unitas was riding through Brookline, which is where he grew up in that area, Mount Washington and so forth. And he stops at a red light. And in the car next to him is Mr. Rooney, Art, Arthur J. Rooney Sr., being driven by one of his uh, friends and uh, Art Rooney winds the window down and s- says to Unitas, "Hey Johnny, keep playing great football. We're rooting for you." You know that's the way he was. He was a guy who would go to the racetrack for horses, and even when he didn't win, he'd tell people he had a great day. So Unitas, yes, the fans often reminded them that. Uh, I'll get tell you when I reminded them. I came back. I I spent. Uh, 1965 in Kansas City, Missouri, in the Army, the Army Hometown News Center. And we were within walking distance of Municipal Stadium where the Kansas City Athletics of Baseball and Charlie O. Finley and Charlie O. the Mule and the Kansas City Chiefs. And they had a really great football team, the Chiefs. And their quarterback was Lenny Dawson. Well, Dawson had been drafted by the Steelers, and he uh, didn't play much. And now he's the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs. They had Buck Buchanan, they had Bobby Bell, they had all these guys that became Hall of Famers. And the same thing would come up again. And I remember coming back to Pittsburgh and visiting Mr. Rooney in his office. And one of his friends was Bill Burns, who was the anchor man at KDKA Television for 20-some years, father of Patty Burns. And I came in there and I told Mr. Rooney what a great team the Kansas City Chiefs were. I did spotting for for uh, Charlie Jones and Jack and uh, and uh, Paul Christman on television and made some extra money. Got to eat decent food when I was in the service by going to Municipal Stadium on weekends. And the thing is, is that Dawson was 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 just great. And I said to him how good he was, and Bill Burns said, "How good could he be? We caught we we <laughs> caught him." And I said, "Hey, we you caught Johnny Unitas." So don't be telling me that that's an indicator that uh, he can't be that good. And the, and the thing is, is that uh, he definitely was that good, and the Chiefs were that good. And a couple of years later, I'm covering the Chiefs against the Minnesota Vikings in the fourth Super Bowl in New Orleans. And uh, uh, show you how things change. You know, I, could, I was right up against Lenny Dawson in the clubhouse afterward in Tulane Stadium. Today, you know, you're doing interviews by Zoom. Yeah, no, it's crazy. That was what Johnny Unitas was Super Bowl five. Back up a couple of years, Super Bowl three. 
That's when football came, became famous. Right. Well, he and Joe, Earl Morrow. Joe, Joe Namath. Earl Morrow was the quarterback and, and Unitas in that. And they and Morrow had played for the Steelers as well as the Detroit Lions and so forth. Earl Morrow was a classy guy. So, by the way, team, and Shula was the coach, and he loses, and he gets the job with the Dolphins. So, by the way, Johnny Unitas, just for the fans at home, 290 touchdowns, 40,000 yards, played for a long time. Let's talk about Broadway Joe. He's from Beaver Falls. Beaver Falls. That's what, about an hour, but that's like 45 minutes from Pittsburgh? Yes. Yeah, it's pretty much Pittsburgh, you know. All six of these quarterbacks that are in the book all lived within and operated as high school athletes within 60 miles of, of uh, Three Rivers Stadium. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. So, and we all, I mean, I think everybody's at least heard of Joe Namath, seen Joe Namath. He's been, I have his helmet here on, on my um, table here. He... He's the one that brought the entertainment, right? He was the he's the guy that wore the fur coats, right? Uh, he tell me about Joe Namath from like a Pittsburgh per- perspective. First of all, you can actually see his autograph. Yeah, you can see his autograph. You can read his autograph. Yeah, you know it's him. Arnie Palmer was his influence in regard to signing. Okay. Arnie Palmer told him if you're gonna if people are gonna ask you for your autograph, you owe it to them to write an autograph that they can read, and 20 years from now they'll know who who signed it. So, Joe Namath. I was the Joe Namath writer for the New York Post. He didn't like the guy who covered the Jets. His name was Paul Zimmerman, and he gained fame and fortune as a NFL expert. But he had one day off a week, and on that day off, they would send me out to Hofstra University to interview Joe Namath. And I was from western Pennsylvania, and I knew where Beaver Falls was, and we had some mutual friends, most of them ne'er-do-wells, that uh, most people would hold suspect as far as my knowing these people. But Joe thought I was cool because I knew these people. You know, these were people that uh, uh, were ruffians or one thing or another, but they got along great with Joe Namath because he was for real. He played basketball at Beaver Falls. He played baseball. He was good enough to get attention in all sports. And he goes to... um, he, he goes to Beaver Falls High School, and they really had a good team at the time. And uh, Namath was a character. He just was, he was just funny. And, and I interviewed all of his boyhood friends and so forth, and they all told funny stories about Joe Namath. Well, Joe Namath went to he's like Alabama. Your age. He's like your age, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, he's that old. He went to, <laughs> that uh, young. He went to Alabama where he played for Bear Bryant. And this is an interesting tidbit. The year before, Bryant had been the head coach at Kentucky when George, George Blanda was on the team. So, so this guy had some quarterback pedigree. He, he knew how to find a good quarterback. Well, he also, the, the guy, um, Larry Bruno, who was named as coach at Beaver Falls, somehow managed to get an interview or talk with Babe Perilli, Vito Babe Perilli, from Rochester, PA, who played at University of Kentucky for Blanda. So Vito Bay Perilli tells Larry Bruno how to run Bear Bryant's offense. And now, Namath didn't start at Beaver Falls until his senior year. And whenever he starts, Bruno's using Bear Bryant's offense. So the next year, Namath goes to Alabama where Bear Bryant has relocated and he's now the coach. So he comes to school 
knowing Bear Bryant's offense in advance. It had to be a bit of an edge. A little bit of an edge. Yeah. Tell me about Super Bowl three. what you remember of it. Um, qu- quick story on that, about because that's what made, made Joe Nationwide famous, right? Right. I uh, That was the year before I moved to New York from Miami. So I was in Miami that year. And, of course, that's where the Super Bowl ended up being played. And I can picture an image of Namath on a chase lounge at a swimming pool in Miami with reporters all around him. And he's, he's, he loved to talk to reporters. And, you know, he wore fur coats. He was a, a, a bachelor in Manhattan. They called him Broadway Joe. He, uh, he was a big star. And, and they paid $400,000 to get him to, for the Jets. They were then owned by Sonny Werblin, who was a showman. So he recognized the, the, the showmanship qualities of Namath and how, you know, he had, he had bought a franchise that was then known as the New York Titans, owned by broadcaster Harry Wismer. And he just improved that franchise quite a bit. And, a, and the signing of Namath was a big deal. The $400,000 quarterback was the title of a book. And uh, Namath gained attention for the AFL, and it was one of the reasons why there was eventually a merger of the two leagues and uh, a showbiz. But, you know, here he was, this Broadway Joe, and yet when I interviewed him for the book, one of my protégés actually set up the interview, a fellow named Brooks Thomas, who was a PR guy for the Jets that I had trained at Pitt. And Namath had agreed to do a half-hour interview with me. And I called him, and I started off the interview by saying, Joe... Let's not do an interview. Let's just talk, which is what we're doing. Yeah. And it suited him well. He didn't feel like he was being pressed for answers and stuff like that. And at the very end of the interview, first of all, the interview went 45 minutes or so because Namath didn't say, that's it, you know, it's 45 minutes. So we talked, and I said, okay, Joe, when everything's done and so forth, what concerns you? What worries you? He said, I worry about being alone. That's a hell of a revelation. I mean, here's this guy who was on the cover of every magazine. I'm not talking, I'm talking about GQ. I'm talking about yeah. Time. Ah, he was like the guy. He was the he was most legend. famous yeah, football player of his time. He yeah. was a big time celebrity. He was on all the net. Was he ever shows. married? Was he ever married? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Multiple times? I've met his daughter. Daughter? That's yeah. another trick. I remember him out at Beaver Falls one time for a banquet, and I recognized his daughter, and I went, and Namath wasn't doing any inter- any signings. He was very good with all the people. He helped them raise money for the Larry Bruno Foundation and so forth, but he wasn't going to sign anything. Yeah, because he wants that value to go up. And I oh. brought one of my books that I had written, and he was, and I've made friends in a hurry with his daughter. And I signed a book for her and gave her this book that had her dad in it. And I said, I was wondering if you could get your dad to come in there and behind closed doors and, and sign this for me. And she said, stay here. And she got me the, the interview. So you do whatever you can. That's good, man. And uh, I remember that night at the Beaver, Beaver Falls uh, banquet, some young woman from uh, Robert Morris got a scholarship. Uh, she was a Beaver Falls student. She got a scholarship from the banquet, and uh, she was majoring in uh, uh, medical 
engineering, like where she would monitor the operations in the operating room. And Joe said, uh, yeah, he said, I majored in that at Alabama. <laughs> and then he said, you know, the writers used to ask me, is it true, Joe, that you majored at Alabama in uh, uh, crocheting? Did you major in crocheting? Is that true? And he says, no, crocheting was too difficult. I majored in journalism. <laughs> so he was well, he's a definitely a funny guy. Funny I think guy. only 173 touchdowns, 27,000 yards. A lot of people will say he doesn't have Hall of Fame type no, credentials. No. So you think really the, what got him in was that showman that that that, that he sold himself, right? And well, that, plus and he sold he got, the he got AFL. The, the Super Bowl got on the map, you know, really, you know, Super Bowl three. So plus that was the first time that an AFL team defeated an established National Football League team. I covered the next Super Bowl, which was in New Orleans between the Minnesota Vikings and the uh, uh, Minnesota Vikings and, and Kansas City Chiefs. And the Chiefs won that game. So two years in a row, former AFC teams won the Super Bowl. Talk to me about Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly's a funny guy. Because that's when I start to remember football, right? right? Like that's Well, yeah. he's from East Brady. Which Where's that at? Well, I, I'm ashamed to say I don't know where East Brady is. Well, East Brady is a small town. It's it's north of Pittsburgh by 60 miles. That's the reason why the quarterbacks, they say it's within 60 miles of Pittsburgh, all those quarterbacks. Well, Brady was from the farthest point, north. And uh, Frank Fuhrer, who owns several sports teams in Pittsburgh and owns the uh, Miller uh, beer distributing uh, over on the south side of Pittsburgh, he's from East Brady. And uh, Jim Kelly was a outstanding high school basketball player and football player for the East Brady team. And I had relatives from East Brady. I didn't realize until Population I, of a thousand. Yeah, I didn't realize <laughs> until I went up there that uh, my grandfather on my father's side was, is buried at uh, the St. Eusebius Cemetery. And there's an O'Brien marker up there. There's also a Fuhrer marker in the, in the cemetery. But uh, that was fun because I met a lot of these guys that grew up with Jim Kelly in high school and went to Buffalo to watch him play and so forth. And Kelly had a when great he went sense to, of he went to Miami. I mean, so where where were you out of Miami by then? Yes. So you were out of Miami because here's the cool thing about that's when Miami hit the map, right? Right, the U, right? You know, like the U, you know, Kelly, uh, Bernie Kosar, Testaverde, Vinny Testaverde. I mean, like they went bam, 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 right? And I don't think a lot of you know. Howard Schellenberg. Schellenberg. It was, uh, you know, Bernie Kozar. That's my guy from Cleveland. So, and then when I was watching the Bills, they had one of those, you know, high-powered offenses, right? You had Thurman Thomas. They had Andre Reid, right? And uh, you know, Marv Levy being the coach. And I always remember, but I remember them losing every single Super Bowl. And it was like, I was like, wow, like they like went four Super Bowls in a row, lost every single one of them. Buffalo Bills. Like that's got to be tough. But what people don't realize is that you have to be really good to be in the Super Bowl. You know? Yeah, I know, but it's kind of like I almost know. like you, it's kind of like, you know, it's it's still an achievement. He doesn't get the Elway in Montana and the Marino. Even though Marino didn't win a Super Bowl, it's like Marino sometimes. Maybe that's because I'm around Pittsburgh. Too I much. saw him against the Redskins in the Super Bowl, Marino. Uh, that, that was played in uh, Pasadena, the Rose Bowl. And uh, he, he played in it right away and then never played in it again. But uh, to me, that doesn't diminish his, his. No, I think he's a great, and he's a great, and he's, a, I think, one of the best humans 
Um, especially nowadays, there are more, you know, the, the things that's been happening. I think his son had a disability. Um, that was, you know, he's brought a lot of awareness to that. I think it, he didn't. Jim he's didn't put a lot throat. of money into children's hospitals in the Jim South had, Florida. Yeah, Jim had throat cancer, I think, or something like that that yeah. he's overcame. And, um, you know, there's a lot of good, got a lot of good stories. And the other thing, too, is a Pittsburgh guy then making his, you know, a career in Buffalo. I feel like those two towns are, you know, gritty gritty type of towns that probably served him well. East Brady prepares you to live in Buffalo. But the, the thing about <laughs> Buffalo, in truth, though, I went there for hockey games, NBA games, NHL games, the French Connection, you know, Dolph Shays, the whole works. The thing about Buffalo, and Cleveland for that matter, is Cleveland and Buffalo are the same cities as Pittsburgh. Yeah. They're the same cities. The people are the same. And, you know, I had a lot of friends in Pittsburgh that are always knocking New York and if people in Pittsburgh didn't have come to appreciate New Yorkers after 9-11, what they witnessed and everything else, you know, people are people. But particularly Buffalo and Cleveland and Pittsburgh share a similar industrial background. Uh, you know, I met in Buffalo. I interviewed a Buffalo Bills running back. You may have heard of him. O.J. Simpson, a rental James Simpson. Nicest guy in the world. He so played we, football? I didn't even know he played football. I just thought he got charged with murder. <laughs> I didn't even know he's a football player. Yeah, he did get charged for murder, and that I was think a, he was guilty, but he No, that was a joke. He was, I knew O.J. not as the football player, as the announcer. Okay. That's how I knew O.J. We're right? running through airports. Well, yeah, with Hertz. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wish we could get But the thing is, he really was the neatest guy, and he was a, an attractive fellow, and he was available, and he had a bit of showbiz about him. And, well, uh, these guys, oh, if you notice, these guys that want to get into broadcast and journalism are always good to the broadcast and the journalist guys. Like, because I feel like that's like the, it's like they aspire to that. So I think that they learn from guys like you while they're playing. And then it's it's an easier transition. Boy, today, every time I turn on TV, there's a new cast of characters behind a desk talking about sports. I mean, I just saw John Jefferson yesterday who played in the NBA. And it's just a. And it's a wonderful marketplace for you, young women who are interested in broadcasting and so forth. But there are so many outlets today for that. And uh, what you know, I always took advantage of the opportunities. I mentioned about being in Kansas City, Missouri. I used to go out to Municipal Stadium and help out in the press box for the A's baseball games. I got first time I had a chance to watch the American League, and then I got to eat in the press room. Well, I was getting $8 a day to eat at the Army Hometown News Center. So to be able just to eat and get a 10 or $15 from the announcers for helping them out. And in football, I actually spotted for, for I mentioned, Paul Christman, who was a great quarterback for the St. Louis Cardinals when they were the Chicago, I mean, for maybe he was with the Chicago Cardinals, but he had played at Missouri and, uh, I took advantage of those opportunities. Bino Cook introduced me to the right people in those communities. Uh, Roger Valdeseri was the PR guy that year for the Chiefs. The only year he was ever the PR guy there. He was at Notre Dame before and after. And uh, Jim's going back down memory lane, folks. Val, Here he goes. Valdeseri was from Belvern. Watch out. More, the na- we're going we're gonna to get him his own podcast. He's in the Hall of Fame. It's going to be called The Name Droppers. We talk, <laughs> we talk about that every show. It's like he comes up with these names. His recollection... I'm being able to pull these names up. I mean, sometimes I struggle with who I talked to yesterday. 
And it's like, you're so sharp with these names. And it's, I feel like they're here. And I feel like if they were listening, man, they'd be all proud that, 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 that they're still getting talked about. Well, Roger Valdeseri had a great smile and was a very respected man. And That's awesome. The way you talk about people is truly a blessing. It you really know, is. Valdeseri is the one that called uh, Joe, Joe Thiesman, Joe Thiesman. Well, and then that changed forever. I met Joe Theismann. I met Joe Theismann at um, Gibson's Restaurant in Chicago. I was at a sports car convention, and, uh, you know, when, when when I'm in town, you know, all the other sports guys are in town because they're doing the autographs, and Lawrence Taylor and Joe Theismann were eating next to me, and I had a good conversation with both of them. But uh, let's stick to the quarterbacks. But he changed the name to Theismann. Yeah, because he, cause, be cause he wanted to win the Heisman, Heisman right? Uh-huh. Yeah. But he didn't win, did he? No. No. Dan Marino. Let's talk about Danny Marino. He's a Pittsburgh boy. Where did where he grow up at? Parkview. Parkview. Where's Parkview at? You're going to quit saying where's something at. Well, where's it at in that? Yeah, downtown? I don't know, North Shore? Yens. Yens. Sorry. Danny Marino's. Where's Park- it, where it located? What's my English supposed to be? Where's that at? Where is that located? Where is that located? Okay, that takes too long. Where did he grow up? Where's that? <laughs> and that, hey, hey and listen, that. yeah, I didn't go to. College. I know a guy that says I didn't go to college. About every you know, other I got like C's and B's in English. You know what I mean? Okay. Like it's all right. But tell me about Danny Marino. We'll work on it. We're going to get better and better as we go along in this series. Danny Marino grew up on Parkview, Parkview Drive, up on uh, right off of the Boulevard of the Allies, where Boulevard of the Allies reaches Shenley Park. So he was right up there in Oakland. Well, he could go across the street from his home. I've been there dinner spaghetti dinner with the with the marinos I, when he was a senior at Pitt, he could walk across the street on parkview to saint regis catholic grade school where he played football he could walk down to the end of the street to the football field where he played fraser field it's now called danny marino field overlooking the j and l mill once upon a time he could walk from his home to central catholic high school in the heart of Oakland, up on Forbes Avenue. And he could walk to the University of Pittsburgh. So he could go, he could walk to grade school, high school, and college. And when he was in college, no, when he was at uh, Central Catholic, he was drafted by the Kansas City Royals as a pitcher. Baseball. Baseball. Yeah. All those guys like him and name it. They could play. L.A. L.A. was drafted, um, I think, to play baseball. Yeah, they could play whatever they wanted to play, you know. Um, so did he have a choice? I mean, he, he was going to Pitt, right? He was ingrained and indoctrinated with it, right? Like, that's where he wanted to go, right? Was there another choice? Do you remember back then? That's a good question. I don't remember discussion of him going anywhere but the University of Pittsburgh. His father drove a delivery truck for the Pittsburgh Press, and uh, his father would work at night dro- dropping off those papers for the newsboys to deliver the next morning. And the thing is, is that Danny's father used to come to Pitt Stadium in the afternoon when they were practicing, and he'd sit up in the stands. He might be the only guy in the stadium watching his son play. And his father taught him how to throw a football. And Jackie Sherrill, who became his coach at the University of Pittsburgh, Jackie Sherrill, Dan's throwing motion was a little unorthodox. His dad taught him how to throw it. And Jackie Sherrill said, don't let anybody ever change your throwing motion. And they didn't. And, of course, he went on to to great glory. When he was at Pitt, he had a great junior season, which was even better than his senior season. But the word got out that he might be fooling around with drugs. 
And Foge Fazio, who succeeded Shiro as the football coach at Pitt, and that's when I went to work there as the public relations director. Foge, he did some time with the Browns. Foge said that the only pro football coach who personally called him to check out the drug comment on Marino was Don Shula. And Foge told him, he said he was fooling around with marijuana. Who wasn't in those days? And that he stopped, you know, that he did it for a while and he stopped. And actually, he had his best season at Pitt the year he was tooting that, uh, that, um, the happy grass. The happy grass. There you or the go. weed. So how was weed. how was Pitt? Um, talk to me about Pitt in the 80s with football. Like, were they like, uh, con- like I don't know. Cheryl had three seasons of 11 and 1. Oh, wow. But they never won the national championship, but they were close. Yeah. 11 and 1. And Jackie Cheryl, by the way, is a very underappreciated, undervalued, underrecognized coach in the history of the University of Pittsburgh. I mean, you know, Johnny Majors gets a great deal of attention, deservedly so. Jock Sutherland was a, an important football coach, and uh, people remember Johnny Michael Oson when he coached at Pitt whenever uh, Ditka was on the team, Ditka and Joe Walton and so forth. So Pitt has a, a good football history. But Danny Marino was good-looking. He's still good-looking. Yeah. Guy. It's, it's a crime. He was a pure passer. I mean, like, when you think of quarterbacks – like just quarterback, take the rest of the team away. Just pure skill set. To me, like that's what you think of in a quarterback. You know, he's like that. He's like Peyton Manning, quarterback. You know, like you know, everyone t- gives Tom Brady. You know, Tom Brady's got all the Super Bowls. Joe Montana's got all the Super Bowls. But passer wise, I always thought that Marino was just like a gun. I mean, he's just a gunslinger. Like, and he's just I don't know. Yeah, and he's got the he's got the look. He just looks good. Yeah, he's like. He's like the all-American quarterback, he man. He's still looking. The, what? Still and when he was a rookie, that was one of his best seasons, wasn't it? Yes. They what? went to the. They went to the. Super that, Bowl. That's very interesting too, because you would think like, wow, like it's one of your best seasons. He had a great career, um, but that, but that to be one of his best seasons was pretty impressive. They had a quarterback there when he went to the Dolphins named uh, David Woodward, who later played for the Steelers for a season. And Bino Cook asked Don Shula. Bino worked for the Dolphins in publicity for a time. He asked him, when did you know that Marino was special? He said the first day he, he showed up for practice, he said he was standing next to David Woodward and they were throwing the ball, and you could tell right away that he was superior to Woodward as a thrower. You know, that's one of the things that people should look when they're watching the Steelers these days. Is if you're being forgiving for Ben Roethlisberger these days, Watch Ben Roethlisberger operate these days and then watch another NFL game. And you will see a noted difference between the way he controls the game, the way he throws the football, and so forth. I mean, he's he's not firing into tight spaces and so forth like he once did. He manages it. He, he, he manages manage, He knows game. his – yeah, he manages it, and he, he needs to have shorter passes, and he, yeah, he's, he plans ahead a little bit more. Right. The older we get in life – the more you have to plant. You told me you're up at six in the morning to get here at eight o'clock. So like I, I get it. You know, it's all good. Let's talk about probably the most decorated quarterback in uh Pittsburgh, uh southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, lore is Joe Montana, uh with four Super Bowls. Um, coming out of New Eagle, Pennsylvania, where uh where I'm very familiar with when I moved from Canton to 
the Pennsylvania area. That's where I, I moved to Monongahela. And, uh, you know, so I got to spend five years down there and, and hear about all the stories from everybody that watched him and that knew him. And yeah, he lived on Parkside. Yeah. I always thought that was interesting that he, he was also Italian, like Danny Marino. He lived on Parkside in Monongahela. No, he was born in a hospital in New Eagle, PA. Yeah, it's that's a small stone's throw away. Stone's throw yeah. away, but he grew up in Monongahela, and of course, the people in Monongahela they 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 complain that Joe didn't remember where he came from, that he didn't come back and uh, enough he to come suit back him and right, everything yeah. else. And uh, the thing about him is Joe Montana, and we still see him advertising Guinness beer, which is a real interesting uh, dichotomy. Uh, Italian boy from Monongahela touting uh, dark beer from uh, from Ireland because he used to say when people said how do you explain the fact that there's all these great quarterbacks from Western Pennsylvania Joe and and Mike Ditka and them, they used to say it's because of the Iron City beer and it wasn't that they drank Iron City beer it's because their mothers <laughs> drank Iron City beer <laughs> and gave birth to them and uh, they had. They, they had good genes. They were good tough, genes. yeah. What What do we know about what What do you know about Joe that nobody else knows? Because I mean, there's lots of stuff published on Joe, but give us some insight. Well, the thing that I got to meet Joe at a banquet that they had in Pittsburgh, um, Huntington Bank sponsored a dinner where they had uh, the quarterbacks from Western Pennsylvania there to be honored. Except uh, they had bland his wife because he had died, but. Uh, Joe, Joe really came off well at that banquet. You know, he, he talked well. And uh, there was some suspicion for a long time that he wasn't the brightest bulb in the room and so forth. But he's come a long way. And uh, when he was at Notre Dame, there was a time when he was seventh among the quarterbacks on the team. Wow. So he, he moved up quite a, quite a bit. And uh, he... Uh, I saw him and uh, beat the Cincinnati Bengals at Pontiac, Michigan, in the Super Bowl. He was the most valuable player in that game. Uh, he's known for the catch, where he threw the ball into the end zone to Dwight Clark, and Clark, who recently died, made a, this great catch that uh, is one of the iconic plays in pro football. And Joe uh, Joe Montana's become one of my favorites because uh, he's just easy to talk to now. He wasn't, he was difficult to talk to. Some people don't realize, like, for instance, Danny Marino is uncomfortable when surrounded by a lot of people. He just is. It's just his nature. It's not that he's difficult or he's trying to play, you know, a one-upsmanship on anybody. It's just that he's uncomfortable in a crowd. And yet he played so well with 60,000, 70,000 people and so forth in the Orange Bowl. Yeah, I mean, Dan Marino, 420 touchdowns, 61,000 yards. I mean, that guy could put up some numbers. You Joe, Mon- Joe Montana, only 273 touchdowns, 40,000 yards. But those four rings, man, they, they elevate you quick. I was watching a, a celebrity golf tournament once on television, just one of those deals where you're watching TV and it comes on. And So I stayed with it. And uh, it's the place where uh, in Reno that uh, Ben Roethlisberger uh, made his mark. But anyhow... Uh, Marino's walking down the fairway. He's playing golf. And somebody on the sideway of the fairway, somebody throws a football to Danny out in the middle of the fairway. He catches it. The guy takes off running down the fairway. 
it's th- three months since the football season has been over. Marino throws the football 40-some yards and catches the guy in stride. And the guy, to his credit, made the catch. But I remember I called Kathy, come here, watch this. You know, I said, I can't believe it. I said, he hasn't touched the football for a while. He's in the middle of a fairway. He's at a golf event. Someone throws him a football, and he throws a perfect pass, 45 yards. I mean, these guys are just different from the rest of us. You know, that's not fair. Did you know that, uh, does he still own part of that restaurant, Anthony's Coal Fire? Yes, he does. I see his picture all over there, and I know that's down in your neighborhood, and uh, I like it. It's got good pizza, good wings, but, uh, you know, all these guys are in the restaurant business a little bit somehow. That one's successful, though, seems like. That was successful, and Shoeless Steakhouse was also successful. Yeah. They had several different outlets. Don Shula is the first, and I know we got to wrap this show up, but Don Shula was the first person that I remember as a young kid being in Canton when Don Shula got inducted into the Hall of Fame. I remember trying to chase him around, trying to get his autograph on my football. And they would, during, that's when the enshrinees would go out uh, during the game on halftime. And they would have a van. They'd be in these like old conversion vans and they would drive them around. But I would always remember, they, then they'd go to the press box right after halftime because then the guys like Lynn Swan and, and Al, Al Michaels would like do the interviews and, and whoever's, you know, announcing the game. So I always knew, like, hey, they're going to be getting out of it. So I would chase the van. I would I would run with the van because it would be going five miles an hour, all these people. And I'm like, Mr. Shula, Mr. Shula, Mr. Shula, can I get your autograph? He pulled me into the press box, like on the lower level, right where you walked in to go up the steps. Just me. I was the only one. There was hundreds of kids trying to get autographs. I remember getting Don Shula's autograph. So that You was, earned it. That was one of my kids. One of our stories. future shows, we'll talk about Don Shula. Thank you for listening to the Big Fish Cares podcast. It's our passion to help share stories and journeys, to help inspire optimism, to take action and accomplish your goals. Make sure to like, rate, and review the show. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hook up with us on the website at www.thebigfishcares.com. Find us on Facebook at The Big Fish Cares and on Instagram at bigfish.benny. See you next time.